Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Set during a smallpox epidemic in the village of Gimbley, Manitoba, near the turn of the last century, Tales from the Gimbley Hospital Redux is a dreamlike elliptical film which explores the jealousy and madness instilled in two men who share a hospital room in a Gimbley we no longer know. The film was directed by Guy Madden, whose body of work is beautiful as it is confounding and delirious. He incorporates the language of past cinema with which he is most intimately familiar from the countless hours of viewing film and combines that with his pre-cinematic sensibility of books he has devoured. I love his work. I love the opportunity uh, to speak uh, with him. We've, we've talked in the past and it's a delight. And uh, Guy Madden, welcome back to Film School Radio. Ah, a million thanks. It's great, uh, it's great to be back. And uh, yeah, if you thought you knew Gimli, already this is the Gimli you no longer knew whatever the slogan is uh <laughs> Gimli we no longer know right so it's not it's uh, not knowable let's be honest it's just it just <laughs> it does exist I was there yesterday it's a one-hour drive north of Winnipeg but even to presuppose that people actually believe Winnipeg exists is asking a lot. It does have a National Hockey League franchise, so that supports a little bit um, uh, the case that Winnipeg exists, but you know, who knows? And that's where you grew up. It is, yeah. Does Green Bay exist? I know they have a football team, but does the actual town exist? It's kind of similar. Before we get too far into this, I wanna let people know that I, the body of your work is remarkable, Heart uh, of the World, which, when it came out was a short film. What is it about? How six many? minutes. Six minutes. Yeah. It's on many of the top 10 lists of, of uh, the film critics that year as best film of the year. Um, up on the list with the feature films. I was so glad I wasn't relegated to that weird short film category. So yeah, felt good. Brand Upon the Brain, uh, The Forbidden Room, one of the most interesting films you'll see, saddest music in the world. And then who can forget Sissy Boy Slap Party, which is one of the funniest. <laughs> anyway, I, I go ahead if you want to say something about it. That's a, um, Sissy Boy Slap Party is uh, available on YouTube. If you do watch it, watch the director's cut, which has 50% more slapping in it. I'm, I don't know how. That film was made just to get revenge on my producer who made me make it. I know it's, another, it's a story for another show because we're here to you know plug tales from the dimly hospital redux yes but, um but anyway it is sissy boy slap party is on youtube within the six minute cut which is 50 percent more slapping and that's that's the one to watch if you watch anything if you want to see some good slapping yeah and it is some of the best slapping i've ever seen in my life to be honest we didn't fake, we didn't fake the slapping and i was camera operator on it and i was slapping people and encouraging them to slap me back because we had to, man, we were really beaten down by lunchtime. You know, it's like three or four hours of just getting slapped around and your cheeks were raw and and you're a little dispirited. 
and uh, very emotionally fragile. So a lot of us were, you know, tears were welling up in our eyes while we we're having our pizza at lunchtime. And then I basically didn't have much left in me for shooting after lunch. We wrapped after a couple more slaps and then just went home whimpering. <laughs> this this movie, Tales from Gimli Hospital, was a lot of fun to make yes. and it did take a lot longer. I made it in a method that some people might be familiar uh, with through the, the backstories of Eraserhead and Stranger Than Paradise. Lynch and Jarmish both took their time. I think Lynch famously took four or five years shooting here or there, thinking of more scenes, shooting a bit more, editing, saving money for more film processing and then shooting some more. Jarmish shot on weekends only for about a year for Stranger Than Paradise. And I took 18 months to shoot Gimli Hospital. It's a very handmade film, very primitive. I made it in the spirit that I perceived in watching while watching my four-year-old daughter make art in arts and crafts time, just quickly getting feelings down on a piece of paper overthinking anything and then proudly put showing it off for a second and then just forgetting about it. And I tried to channel that sense of creative spirit of uh, because of course kids make remarkably kneecap bucklingly disarming artwork. And I thought if, you know, I'm never going to be technically sophisticated, but if I could make films in this spirit, maybe it'll be interesting. And I think, I think I did honor my daughter's creative spirit properly. At least I decided I had when I um, watched the film at TIFF recently. I hadn't really seen it properly since uh, decades had gone by. So it was made very much, I don't want to sound like a megalomaniac, but I didn't want to bother people to help me. So I didn't ask for volunteers to come out, except for the actors. And actors have their own agenda when appearing in movies. They they hope that they'll catch on and be cast in other movies. But I didn't have anyone helping me make the the props or the sets or phoning the actors. And I'd pick them up and drop them off and feed them and crack open a brewski for them. Things like that. It was really handmade, and I and I had to do a lot of it. I had help from. Donna Soki, who's also in the movie, uh, doing costumes, and I paid her for that, but a real pittance. My budgets have since gotten bigger and smaller, and I really find myself longing for the simple days when you had to work hard to make a movie, but you weren't relying on anyone else. No one could disappoint you by just not coming across for you. No one said no. You just made the movie. If an actor didn't show up, you shot something else or just drank his beer for him or, um, or replace the actor if you had to, but there were no hard feelings. And um, I don't know, I, I view this long ago filmmaking time with nothing but the warmest goose flesh inducing nostalgia. And um, if I had to, if no one ever gave me another penny to make a movie, I'd happily return to handcrafting a movie like this. It was such a blast. I had not seen Tales from the Gimbley Hospital. Now, are we calling it Redo? I mean, is that Redux or? I guess, Redux, I'm not sure what it is. I just know Apocalypse Now. Um, oh, that's right. Titled its re-release as a Redux. I think they added some scenes to it and we did the same. I, I shot a scene 11 years after um, making, finishing Gimli Hospital in 1999. 
I shot a scene and we, uh, the cast members were kicking around and one of the cast members had been in a bad accident and couldn't walk or speak anymore. And I thought, well, the least we can do is make a deleted scene from Gimli Hospital. Let's do that. So it gave us something to do and it was kind of movie therapy, movie making therapy for all of us. And uh, it was nice to get the old gang together for one day. We shot it on the very sa same day that John Kennedy Jr. went down in his sad plane crash. Oh my goodness. And um, so between the news breaking that he had gone down and bedtime, we'd, we'd shot this, uh, what we thought of as a short movie. But I, call, I told Mike, who has since passed away, that it was a deleted scene and that if I ever got a chance, I would put it in the movie. And so... I found myself this year with a chance to put it in the movie. And I, uh, there were mixed mixed opinions on the additional footage in Apocalypse Now Redux, but um, I feel this really does enrich the, uh, enrich the film. And I found a place for it that really helps energize the movie where perhaps it was uncomfortable. And um, so I'm, I'm pleased. Yeah, the film is some silent movie era look to it. Yeah. Watching this film in particular, there's a lot of it in the framing and in the sort of folkloric tale that we're watching. Yeah. It feels very Bergman-like to me in the sense of the starkness of the, the, of the imagery. Yeah, there's a lot of starkness. There's a lot of really gloomy stuff going down but I, ca I can't take myself seriously on screen for more than a minute so there's a lot of goofy crap too that I know um, Bergman liked watching goofy movies but none of that goofiness made it into his films but my film might have a different sort of more of a sandwich flavor a bit of Bergman a bit of Jerry Lewis or something like that it looks like um, a silent or German expressionist film because that's the only way I could light I didn't know how to light with more than one light. So the shadows are very black. Uh, the faces are illumined, but then everything quickly grades off into mysterious darkness. And uh, that lack of information is a really cheap, depriving the audience of set dressing information is a really cheap way of getting a movie done. You can suggest set dressing with sound effects. You know, you just add some forest sounds or swamp sounds. And next thing you know, you have one, even though uh, all you're getting is a face in blackness. And so I, I learned all sorts of shortcuts that enable me to make a feature film without really having any money. That's one of the things about your work throughout is this the sort of mythology that you embrace or folk yeah. tales or folklore or something. Because for me, that is, it's so basic. It, I mean, it goes back to the cave drawings, right? I mean, just there's something very basic about the way that people are and and the way you portray them in your film. I don't know if I'm saying that very well, but. Yeah, no, I, I, I know what you mean. It's because I, I wasn't sure how to make a movie, really. And I always try to understand, when I watch a movie, I try to understand it by walking in through the door labeled folktale. Uh, because I know what folktales are up to. They have a very solid, durable, centuries old, storyline but it's usually concealing some sort of psychological unease right. or cultural unease and that that i kind of understand so when i watch a movie i start watching it as if it's a folk tale even if it isn't silent cinema tends to be closer to folk tales 
Um, and contemporary films, less so. Although I guess Marvel Universe, primitive folk tale, you know, campfire stories just uh, told with millions of dollars worth of special effects. I also wanted to mythologize this town that I really love, Gimli, uh, where I've spent every summer of my life, this little Icelandic fishing village on the shores of Lake Winnipeg in the middle of North America. And I, I just felt that the best way to, to mythologize it was by using the preeminent medium of mythologization of the 20th century, because I made this in the 20th century, and that's film emulsion. Once you put something in film, it becomes less true and more true, more mythically true, but less true. And I was thinking these uh, things in 1988, long before the sense of truthiness and Donald Trump's fake news made um, the act of not telling the truth kind of more heinous feeling. But this was all done in, in good fun that I wanted to take this town that I loved and not make a documentary about it, but mythologize it by giving it the old Hollywood treatment. And I felt that there's something in the way Icelanders tell stories that reminded me of folk tales. They have some sort of narrative distance from their subjects where personality nuances and details aren't that important, that the big picture is important. It's more like looking at a tapestry than a movie in a way. Now my movie doesn't look like a tapestry. It looks like a movie uh, with actors moving around, not stitched into a wall hanging. But there's something about the narrative distance that I, I had picked up from my mother and grandmother when they told me stories of the Icelandic settlers. And I just knew the distance that this movie needed, this narrative distance, that there would be characters that stand for things. You know, just a man, a more successful romantic rival, a jealous man, a woman, and then some, and then just extras after that that fill in this very simple story. It's a story so simple that people don't even think there is a story, and they might be right. <laughs> but um, I like the folkloric flavors, even though there isn't, you know, if you're not, it's not like going to a, a, a concert of world music, of dead serious world music. It still will just remind people of, of old Hollywood tropes. But I like, I wanted to repurpose them so they'd be fresh somehow. And who knows, I can't tell after 34 years what I did even barely remember doing it, as a matter of fact. I deny doing it, as a matter of fact. We're speaking with Guy Madden. We're talking about the film Tales from the Gimli Hospital Redux. It's coming out here in the Los Angeles area. It'll be playing at American Cinema Tech in Los Feliz. And that will be October 16th, 18th, and the 20th. 10 p.m. only, so be looking for that. It's being released through Zeitgeist uh, Film Distributors, and it'll open on October 14th at the IFC Center in New York for a one-week exclusive engagement in which Guy Madden himself will be in person for select screenings. So if you're listening yes. to Voice in New York, please be looking for that. Well, go ahead. Yes, people in the live audience can stop me halfway through a long-winded answer and, and ask another question. One they actually want to hear me talk about. Um, so there's your chance. I want to go back briefly to the to talking about the sort of folklore. This is the interesting thing about film. To me, folklore tends to be, in some sense, like the Bible, in that for people who couldn't understand the world around them or had little understanding of the world, yeah. 
it allowed them an opportunity to make sense of it, whether or not it was true or not. Right. So in another way, to take that and put it into film, which in some ways alters the meaning of all of that into something that seems more definitive or authoritative is an interesting dynamic to me. Yeah, I've filmed a few movies that ha- whose scripts had very long stretches of autobiographical content. But just in the act of take, even when you're trying to accurately recreate autobiographical anecdotes, something gets changed at, at, in the scripting process. You leave out stuff that maybe should have been included and vice versa. Um, you cast someone that sort of takes the ball and runs with it and changes the meaning a bit more. Then you have to uh, find locations or build sets and costume these people. And in other words, there's just so many variables that um, right out of the gate, you no longer have your autobiography. You have a, a fiction uh, that's that may seem psychologically plausible or psychologically true, but it's not literally true at all. And so I've found my own um, experiences are almost a bottomless uh, source of fiction. Um, and which is why I, when I was commissioned once to make a documentary by the Documentary Channel up here in Canada, a documentary about my hometown of Winnipeg, I just didn't even try to make an entirely factual thing. I just thought, no, this is an opportunity to get some myths about the city that I always wished someone had created out there. And then I mixed it in with some facts. And after a while, even I couldn't remember which were the facts and which were the fictions because they're all just um, myths now. And uh, that's fine with me because most documentaries are myths. Now, I'm not, I don't mean to sound too flippant because obviously there's some very important documentaries that reveal horrible injustices and tragedies and things like that. And so even though there's fictional elements to them too, because of the nature of just making a film, a thing, uh, a medium that makes fiction as well, but those, those things can do th- things that are with that are relatively true they can accomplish relative truths and galvanize people to action and things like that so i don't want to sound flippant about untruths but um i i was trying to make an entertainment here that also mythologized a place that i really loved and figure out a way of sharing that love and the flavors of my love with an audience and uh it feels like it's finally coming around. Uh, the movie just played some festivals and played in theaters a little bit in the late 80s, but audiences didn't know what to expect. And a lot of uh, a high percentage of the audience really disliked the movie. <laughs> Lots of walkouts. But I think now, uh, decades later, some, you know, the film has enough of a little re- reputation that you can look up online and you can decide whether, or some people may have heard of me, and they decide whether they want to try this thing. And um, the walkout rates have disappeared almost to zero. I think zero so far um, in the screenings I've been present at. So um, I was really shocked. It's just, and the film didn't get any better with age. Um, it's just, it's, it found its demographic. And I'm really thrilled. Now, finally, I get to share my love of Gimli and and uh, highbrow and lowbrow gags all at once with an audience, a real living audience. 
most of whom weren't even born yet when the film was made. What are you working on now? What can we expect next from, from your work? Yeah, I'll be doing something next summer. I don't, uh, I'll be shooting either a TV series or a feature film. I'm not sure what. I'll go with whichever one is green lit first. And because um, I've been inactive for too long. Made the Green Fog was on your show to talk about it in 2017. That's five years ago. That's too long to go without completing. I've made lots of shorts in the interim, but I, I want to make a feature really badly. I'm feeling incomplete without one. Well, again, let me let our listeners know that Tales from the Gimbley Hospital Redux will be out on October 14th. First screening will be at the IFC Center in New York City for a one-week exclusive engagement. Dive Man will be there in person for select screenings. Well, it will be screening at uh, American Cinematheque in Los Feliz. Uh, those screenings on October 18th, sorry, October 16th, 18th, and 20th, 10 p.m. Well, I, for one, love spending time inside the mind of Guy <laughs> Man, whatever form it is. I also wanted to bring up that you're a an, an artist outside of the filmmaking realm in terms of your your photography and your collages and always yeah. always interesting that's right i have a show a collage show uh from october 5th to october 30th at the london film festival at the bfi south bank there's uh, i've made a bunch of collages 10 collages that are movie poster size and with an augmented reality loaded ipad um you can view all the collages in three dimensions and go into them. And they're like the storyboards for a feature film, but in 10 collages, each one 10 layers deep. So there's about a hundred collages in three dimensions and I'm really excited about that. So if you happen to be in London, go to the BFI South Bank and what a shameless self-promotion in the, in the month of October. Guy Mad will soon be also teaching at the University of Toronto. Do I have that? Yes. Yeah, I hope to be welcomed back. I think I will be. So if you're interested in spending more time with Guy Man, you should enroll in that class if, uh, if you're in the area. And uh, this is random. Have you ever considered or have you ever been approached or have you ever approached Laurie Anderson to work with her? I have worked with her once indirectly uh, for Brand Upon the Brain, uh, which had a live element with a live orchestra, singer, live Foley artists making sound effects on stage and a narrator and she narrated one half of a double bill with her husband Lou Reed narrating the other half in the East Village back in 2007 I think it was I worked with her once she's super lovely and really smart and I'm a fan like crazy and so something I, about your sensibility and hers that feels like it would you would make well, would work that's a lovely compliment she's um just got so much feeling for someone who is, I used to think of performance artists as, as lacking in feeling, uh, but she's 100% feeling. She's just feeling and she's, a, it's a wonderful feeling hanging with her. So. Yeah. I, I was, I was lucky enough to see the, the tour that she supported the United States parts one through four. Um, and it, it was that it was all of that. You just yeah. The whole thing was amazing putting aside all of my, all of that, my fantasies, uh, I'll, Guy Madden, thank you. 
Thank you so well, much. If it happens, I'll let you know so you can check that fantasy box. And, um, you know, got to check it. It's all about checking the boxes. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.